Hello and welcome to the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. My name is Ashley Winning and I'm the founder of the Motherhood Circle and the creator of the Journey into Motherhood program. Are you wanting to learn more about vaginal birth after cesarean section and find your confidence to birth the way you feel is the best and safest for you and your baby? Spending too much time worrying about the what ifs and questioning if your body is capable of vaginal birth. Well, that's about to change. This podcast is for women wanting to learn about feedbacks, especially home births, and for professionals who want to learn more about how to support VBAC women home birthing. Nothing is off the table. I invite you to connect with yourself, find your own voice and strength to create this pregnancy, birth and motherhood experience you desire. You totally deserve this. If we haven't met before, let me tell you a little bit about me. I'm a mother of two, I'm a doula, a motherhood guide, and have had two unplanned and unneeded cesarean sections. And I'm planning my first home and vaginal birth, so it'll be a home birth after two cesareans. I'm here to support you along your journey to discover and create your positive pregnancy, birth and motherhood story. So feel free to reach out at any time if you want support. Now let's get started. Hey, me again. I just wanted to let you know that I've just created a brand new Facebook group called VBAC Home Birth Support Group, where you can connect with other like-minded mothers who are looking to have a VBAC home birth as well. You can find the link in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you there. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I was just having a chat with you and, and sharing how I have a bit of a lady crush on you and how I've been following you for a couple of years now and had the pleasure of meeting you at the Sydney Doula Conference. So it is such a pleasure to have you and your knowledge on the podcast to share um, some insight and wisdom with the audience today. Uh, would you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Um, okay, so I'm a midwife. Um, and I'm an academic researcher, writer and speaker. And um, you've got experience of working as a midwife in the UK and Australia in hospitals and at home. And I guess the last kind of the last seven years of my practice was just um, home birth practice in Australia um, and caring for you know, a lot of women who are choosing VBAC, choose home birth for you know, all the reasons that I'm sure you're aware of. So um, I've cared for women planning home, home births with feedback. Um, and I guess my area of real interest and speciality in terms of writing and research and speaking is the promotion of physiological birth. So instinctive physiological birth and what midwives do during birth to promote that or not. Um, and really women's rights in maternity care and women's rights as in rights of passage. So rights legally, but also their, their rights of passage in childbirth. All really important topics and basically my obsession over the last couple of years. So I'm really excited to get on and talk about some of these um, these important topics as well. So I guess we'll just dive right into it. Uh, let's let's explore what I, what I call undisturbed birth or instinctive birth. Um, what's, what do you prefer to call it? Oh, well, I tend to use the term physiological birth and sure. in, an instinctive birth, but, you know, people call it all kinds of things. I 
tent and keep away from normal birth because I don't think that's helpful because no. none of us are normal. And a cesarean section is normal. You know, it's, yeah. it's actually not normal to have a physiological birth in, in modern birth maternity services. And physiological refers to an organism fun functioning in a healthy way. So I guess that's an instinctive is, you know, the instinct. So I guess either will do. Yeah, I love those. I think, you know, that makes it really clear. You know, I love instinctive birth and physiological birth. You know, the way we were born to do it and, you know, what mammals are doing out there every single day, um, how we were designed to birth. Yeah. So what is physiological or instinctive birth for the audience? to understand a bit more so this is as you said just our our mammalian blueprint so we have evolved to birth instinctively to know what to do and what behaviors are needed to get our babies out and to then protect the babies that's how, why we're still here as humans and then you know so that's that's something that all women have evolved to do but we live as humans in this culture and society that builds all kinds of kind of belief systems around things, practices and rituals around birth. So really since the beginning of time, humans have also enacted rituals around birth, which have influenced birth. So I guess nobody really has a completely undisturbed physiological birth because unlike mammals, we have this neocortex and we have these complex social um, groups which alter how we approach birth. So that's more when you're introducing support people or people in your space. Is that what you mean versus mammals who may move away and birth completely alone? Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of kind of debate around why is it that human females birth with other females and other mammals don't do that. And actually um, I've been researching this for my book and I've headed off on all kinds of tangents on all kinds of animals mm. and it's really interesting because the so the animals that we're closest to are chimpanzees and bonobos mm -hmm. and chimpanzees birth by themselves so they go away from the group to birth but chimpanzees live in social groups that are really quite um volatile um mm -hmm. you know the, there's a lot of the male chimps are dominant and it's yes, a bit scary like, they're pretty nasty the you're out and then you're dead <laughs> They're pretty nasty to each other. Yeah. And for, for a female, you know, that's quite a threat to her and her baby. Babies mm. will be killed if, the, you know, potentially. Whereas bonobos live in these really kind of socially cohesive groups, which are um, kind of almost like matriarchal or matricentric. So the females are, have a lot of power in terms of um, because it's all about kind of how people, how they, in, how they interact. And though, so I guess they're most, I'd like to think, well, they're probably not, are more similar to humans in their social structure in that they're actually nice to each other. And there's lots of sex with bonobos, but you know, that's <laughs> a whole other story. But bonobos actually birth with other females. So when they birth, females gather and kind of protect them, but also help kind of the elder females do enact little actions to show, show the mother what she needs to be doing as the baby's coming out mm -hmm. to catch it. So they have quite social births. So I don't know, the jury's out as to, as humans, what we are, what we've evolved to do. Um, but we have certainly taken up a social model of birth. And as way back, as far back as we can go, women have sought the um, company of other women while they give birth. That um, helps clear up some questions in my mind, because I've been reading a lot about undisturbed birth. And I'm like, if you have, you know, a midwife or a doula or someone present, 
how does that kind of work out in your mind or do you have to do it alone kind of thing? But so it makes me feel a lot better to know that it's quite normal and natural and probably why I'm feeling like I definitely want to have people around me as well. Did you, out of interest, this is totally off scale, but did you come across how elephants birth? Do they, I know that the women stick together after and then the grandmothers and the mothers teach the new mothers how to kind of look after their babies to keep their babies safe. Did you find anything on elephants for elephant birth? Yeah, I did. Did they, <laughs> did they birth alone? No. So elephants mm. also birth with other females and it's more of a, um, so when the female elephant is birthing, the other, the other females surround her and kind of face outwards mm. to the, so that it's more like a protective. And then, yeah, they all, once the baby's here, they all run, you know, touch the baby and smell the baby and kind of welcome the baby into the, into the herd and then bring the baby back in kind of as a group protecting it. Because mm, I've se- I've been watching them and I'm just amazed at how they stick together and they're a real little community looking mm. after everyone. So, oh, cool. Thanks for sharing that. So we've touched base on what a physiological or instinctive birth is, I suppose, uh, on a bigger scale. What are the benefits of of this kind of birth? Because we are often told about the risk and the benefit. We're not even told about benefits, but we're often told, especially as VBAC women, the risks of a VBAC birth, but we don't ever get told about the benefits when we're fighting, you know, in the system, I suppose, inverted commas, to have a spontaneous uh, delivery or, you know, less interventions and these sort of things. It, we never get information on, you know, the benefits of a physiological birth. Um, and it find, it's a little bit disturbing to me and a little bit crazy, you know, it's interesting, I suppose, that it's so hard to have this kind of birth in the hospital setting, um, which is why so many women, you know, go on to choose a home birth. So what are the benefits of having this kind of birth? Well, I mean, I guess the way I think about birth is a little bit of a flip from what the kind of medicalized mainstream maternity system thinks about birth, which is that, that and it all goes, way, you know, goes back historically where the maternity system was built on the idea that women's bodies are dangerous, which comes from kind of religion and state way, way back, that women's bodies are dangerous and that um, by managing and controlling the woman's body, you can reduce the risk. So the, the concept is that the woman is the danger and the things we do to the woman reduce the chance. So with a VBAC, you know, the, the fact that there's a scar on the uterus is really dangerous and we need to do all these things to the woman to reduce the chance that that scar is going to burst open you know and which is very very unlikely but that's the focus whereas I think it's more helpful to flip it and kind of think of actually the vast majority of the time physiology works sometimes it turns into pathology and yes we need intervention for that but if we consider what we do to the woman as the risk it can completely changes practice so with a physiological birth what's what you're doing is you're promoting and supporting the physiology of the birth which is the unfolding of a healthy instinctive birth process and everything you do and say is an intervention so you need to then think about it as am I about to intervene in a good way because you can have good interventions if you you know as you were saying you feel you feel like you want to have women around you so having women around you is an intervention from physiology I guess but it can be a positive one it can help you be calm and feel safe and supported therefore physiology actually functions better because you're not stressed 
Yeah, and it's interesting that we talk about considering the oh, blueprint sorry. and how you can support that. Sorry, you just cut yeah, out no, there. No. So I thought you took a break. <laughs> sorry, the internet <laughs> just cut out there. <laughs> um, oh. Sorry, I was just going to tune in and say, with it's interesting that you talk about interventions in a good way as well, because when I wanted to have a, a water birth in, or at least uh, labour in the hospital pool i was told that was an intervention um, but as far as i could see it was a very it was a good intervention that could have been used to help me labor and that sort of thing so uh, would you consider a birthing pool intervention i think anything that's an intervention from that basic mammalian you know head off into the forest and give birth is an mm. intervention um, but as you say some interventions actually support physiology so water birth there's enough evidence to show that for women who choose water birth it has positive outcomes it actually promotes and supports physiology it relaxes women it enables them to move more effectively so so that's an intervention that's you know effective and promotes physiology versus a lot of interventions that actually disrupt physiology and what are some of the other benefits of because i know there's there's so many benefits of um undisturbed or uh you know physiological birth what are some of the benefits that we can rattle off here for our listeners today Oh, so you've got the kind of short-term benefits in that if a woman's birthing physiologically and undisturbed, then you've got better hormone um, functions. You've got increased oxytocin, which makes the contractions more effective. She will um, enact. So there's there's a relationship between mother and baby that's often forgotten in the medical model. So the, the mother will regulate her contractions according to the needs of the baby and you know respond to the environment around her and what the baby needs. So you've got that kind of protection of the baby because the physiology is functioning. So you're less likely to get a stressed baby during a physiological birth. Um, and then the woman protects her own body when she's pushing a baby out and enacts behaviours that reduce the chance of her tearing. So she's more likely to have a healthy outcome of her perineum and of the baby because she oxygenates the baby. And then, you know, just that whole microbiome seeding, the epigenetics of labour, which is just we're just starting to get research and researchers looking at um, how important. So we know epigenetic changes happen in pregnancy. So what happens is the mother's biology and physiology send messages to the baby that that alter the baby's DNA expression. So it kind of switches certain genes on and off. And even if that baby is not genetically hers, so if it's a um, donor egg, the, the woman that the baby's growing in will actually, you know, use that material, that DNA material and, and craft it according to her environment and there's a lot of that going on during birth so you've got some really important set points happening for the baby so the set point for the oxytocin system in the baby and the baby's you know needs to have a bit of stress because that actually initiates its breathing and its transition into um into extra extra uterine life so there's all these things that are happening for the baby and for the mother and then so long term we know that physiological birth is associated with better long-term outcomes for babies in terms of better breastfeeding outcomes um, heart disease is associated with um, interventions such as cesarean um, there's just there's a whole range of things that we're only really looking at because previously we've just looked at does the baby come out alive and we're only really now looking with research about well yeah well that's one factor but what happens after that yeah, interesting. And 
I mean, obviously there's so much to talk about and it goes in so much more depth than, you know, we can even get onto today. But what about benefits for mother, for the mum? Because, you know, I feel like birth is all about a healthy baby, a live baby. Um, but what about the benefits for mum of, you know, having a physiological birth, if there so are any? Yes, there, I mean, there are health benefits in terms of she's more likely to have a, a good outcome, you know, less likely to tear, less likely to hemorrhage, less likely to have a, a complication. But also we, we need, when we, if you look at intervention and things like induction and cesarean, you need to compare them to what the, the default is. And labour is not just about getting a baby out. Mm-hmm. There's a whole load of things, you know, changes that happen within a woman's body before labor to prepare her for labor and then during labor that really set up how she feels and then integrates that after the birth so a woman who's had a physiological birth by the has got extremely high levels of oxytocin which is the you know bonding hormone Mm -hmm. you've got high levels of prolactin which are the milk making and mothering hormone she's just had a massive burst of adrenaline as the baby crowned which kind of as you come down off adrenaline um it sets up kind of falling in love Mm. (laughs) they've actually done experiments where they scared people and then got them to meet a handsome (laughs) stranger wow and and found out that if they'd had an experience where they'd had an adrenaline boost before they met this handsome stranger, they were more likely to fall in love. So you've got that happening. Um, And then you've got a baby coming out and the mother and baby are flooded with beta endorphins, which is kind of the, an opiate, which is an, a dependency hormone. So you've got this combination that makes the woman feel euphoric and the mother and baby, you know, I, I call it the enchantment phase where they just are falling in love. And you can't replicate that. You can try. You can certainly get oxytocin going post-birth with skin-to-skin contact. Um, But that sense of um, physiological empowerment that women describe after a physiological birth um, is not something you can replicate through any other kind of birth. And that can be really confronting for women who who have not experienced that. And it's not, I'm not saying, you know, I've had, <laughs> I've had nursing students like walk out of sessions and get very upset with me when I say this, you know, saying, well, I love my baby just as much. Ab- absolutely, you do, because we're, we're animals with a neocortex. We can, we can know our babies before they're born and we fall in love with them anyway. But that physiological, if anybody's experienced the difference and, you know, I myself have experienced the difference. I have two babies. One was, um, not a physiological, was a vaginal birth, but um, artificial oxytocin. The second birth was physiological. And the, and I can only describe it as a physical um, euphoria and connection to the baby was completely different. And this is what women describe. And, and then that goes on to assist you to set up the relationship with the baby. So, you know, my baby, if I had had my first baby, if I'd had my second baby who I had a physiological bond with first, I'm not sure I would have survived because she was a really difficult baby that on an intellectual level was very hard to love because mm. she was extremely demanding, really difficult and to, you know, not sleep, all those things. Luckily my first baby was easy, mm. but the, and it's not that I love either of them more than the other, although my, you know, my 
daughter does describe herself as my oxytocin baby and wind her <laughs> brother up about that. But we, we need to acknowledge there's, there's an actual physiological connection that happens between mother and baby that happens after a physiological birth. If we disturb it, um, there's risks involved in disturbing it. And I suppose this goes on to then possible birth trauma, possible PND, uh, this experience where the delayed bonding with the baby goes on and then mothers are berating themselves, thinking there's something wrong with themselves when the, the actual bond and, the, and that, you know, burst of love can take a lot longer because they've missed out on some of those experiences and hormones. Yeah, so then, then we need to help women to reclaim that in other ways. But that initial experience can't be reclaimed. No. And it's also risk management. You know, we, we, if with, a, with a physiological birth, one of the most dangerous times of birth is, you know, the placenta, getting the placenta out. Mm. Um, and we kind of forget that that initial enchantment phase where all those hormones are flying around and mother and baby are interacting is what gets the placenta out let's talk about that because (laughs) my biggest fear because of all the movies i've seen you know of women basically passing away during childbirth is always at the placenta stage and so that was always a huge fear for me so i read articles on your website in regards to uh a physiological delivery of the placenta and how it was beneficial if you have a physiological birth but maybe not as beneficial if you were in a hospital setting or a setting where you didn't have an undisturbed birth and so I was kind of trying to absorb as much information about the whole placenta uh, you know trying the benefit of of that and how to you know make sure that the placenta comes out naturally and then that sort of stuff so it's interesting that you say that could you expand a little bit more on you know how to get the placenta out naturally and and the benefit of you know a physiological birth yeah so if your body has birthed your baby physiologically then it's actually much safer for it to birth the placenta physiologically and the, the research around actively managing the birth of the placenta after a physiological birth is that it increases your chance of hemorrhaging, which is no surprise because if the body's functioning really well and has birthed a baby and you intervene, you're going to disrupt that you know, really healthy unfolding of physiology. So once the baby's born, there's still the big job of the placenta to come. And I, I feel your that as a midwife, this is the bit of labor that I don't like either because it's the sacredness of this part of labor is forgotten because in the west we're really good at managing hemorrhage and we've got very high rates of hemorrhage but we manage it really well and we don't see women die from hemorrhage you know very very rarely so it's not something we're scared of and for women in in our kind of cultural references to birth the placentas just doesn't exist you know women give birth on tv and there's no placenta so that phase is not really given that sacredness that it needs so once the baby's out and you've got all these high circulating hormones the mother and baby and this is really important mother and baby work together to get the placenta out so the oxytocin the release of oxytocin so what tends to happen is there's a pause after a physiological birth once the baby's out because the baby will be usually born onto the floor between the mother's knees if she's not in water 
and she'll just have a pause because this she's just done something huge she's just been in this really altered state of consciousness until the adrenaline boost of transition which kind of brings her back to then push the baby out and then she's had another boost of adrenaline as the baby's head crowns but she's still in this real kind of getting her feet back onto the into the world so there's a pause and the woman will kind of stop and gather herself before she then looks down at her baby who is making that transition with the support of the placenta and then she'll touch the baby talk to the baby and then eventually gather the baby up and put the baby on her chest and then once the baby's on her chest and the baby's nervous system starts to settle in response to the smell of their mother and the fact that then they now feel really safe because they're protected on their mother's chest they start this little dance and the baby can smell so the um, Montgomery glands on the nipple um, send out a smell that is very similar to amniotic fluid so the baby recognizes that it's in the right place this is the right person and the baby will start to um, bob its way to the nipple and kick its feet on the on the uterus which makes the uterus start to contract again and the baby's hands it does this kind of grabs the nipple and then pulls its hands back to its face where it then licks its its hands and it's starting to get the taste from the nipple onto its hands and into its mouth and all of that is learning but it's also stimulating the mother's release of oxytocin which makes a uterus contract and this good I mean this is a long time you know we're talking about minutes you know a quarter of an hour maybe half an hour of, as the baby does this dance towards the nipple and interacting with the mother making uterus contract making the placenta come away and then contracting down those blood vessels so that the bleeding stops and um, so it it's really important to not disrupt that and that's it's really hard as a care provider when you're going oh is she going to bleed what's going to happen to not disrupt that and there's a lot of assessments go on around that time so in hospital you and baby's been people will not just let the baby do the part of the baby's learning to breastfeed is attaching and detaching and attaching and detaching from the nipple and that stimulates oxytocin as well and the baby needs to do that to imprint how to attach to the nipple so it's not that it's being useless and can't get on so we don't need to jump in and stick the baby on the nipple it's actually part of the learning of the oh get on that way come off that's imprinted get on that way come off all of that gets the placenta out that is how the placenta comes out so any disruption of that will increase the chance that the woman will bleed so interesting because you know you know half an hour 45 minutes that wouldn't normally be allowed in a birth i suppose as like a kind of almost like a panic to kind of get that placenta out so if we do allow this to happen we allow babies to crawl to the nipple and you know do part of the work for us and we're calm and we're relaxed and we're enjoying our situation what is i'm going to say normal in inverted commas but you know what is normal for placenta birthing time or what can be normal and what are you know some of the benefits of allowing that versus some of the risks of going over that time frame well it hospitals tend to say the placenta needs to be out within 45 minutes or an hour with physiological birth of the placenta which is actually i don't know where they get that from i think they just made that up there isn't any real evidence to say that it should be out at any particular time 
but it would make sense if you look at the physiology and in my experience of doing um, attending births where women are having physiological births and the placenta is usually out within an hour some women it's not some women it's hours um, but you are asking questions if you're coming up to the hour and there's been really good interaction between mother and baby and you've seen that you know the baby's and mother have been doing all of those behaviors that get the placenta out and there's still no placenta around about an hour i would be questioning mm, i wonder if it's just out and it's sitting in the vagina and if we just help the mother to sit upright it'll slide out which is the usual scenario that it's it has come out it's just she's reclined and enjoying the baby and it's just sat in there so i think you start questioning or i would start questioning around about an hour but then you've got to be careful because it's not a, it's not a stressful questioning because that's going to actually reduce oxytocin and increase the chance that the placenta is not going to come out so you have a bit of a difficult time as a midwife trying to not disturb it but also trying to keep the situation safe yeah because you do you do need to keep an eye on but really from my my perspective everything i need to know i can know from looking like I don't need to touch a baby to know if a baby's made a healthy transition a baby who is kind of a nice color who is moving about and looking for a breast is clearly well oxygenated and their heart rate will be normal because otherwise they wouldn't be doing that so mm -hmm. I don't need to touch the baby or interfere in that way and with the mother you know you can have a look but you you know I have to check myself um, I had a year my year of placentas I called it where I had a year of women having you know luckily nothing too awful that we couldn't manage but you know a few women had a big bleed women had a retained placenta so I was a little bit stressed around, <laughs> around mm -hmm. placentas so I had to just say to women look this stuff's before they had their baby this stuff's been going on so this is my issue mm -hmm. so if I remove myself from the room I'm dealing with myself not you mm -hmm. um, and I would do that you know I'd say if they've got a partner with them they're not a woman is not going to bleed to death without noticing mm -hmm. She's going to be the first person who says, I don't feel well, or Oop, there's lots of stuff coming out of me. Um, I would actually just leave the room and say to the partner um, on the mother, I am just sat outside of that, the door. And if you need me, give me a shout and I'll come straight in. And usually, you know, they, they'll give me a shout and say the placenta's out. Oh, that's really good. Um, when you were talking about the baby, and the baby becoming aroused and waking up. I've seen a lot of birth videos where the baby may take a couple of minutes to kind of come to. Would you consider that quite normal? Yeah. And, yeah. I, and you've got to kind of think about what else is going on for that baby. So if you've got a healthy baby and the placenta is still attached and functioning, then the baby has time because the baby's still getting oxygen. So it can take a little bit of time for it to, to come around. And um, support if the placenta is not functioning you can see that by looking you know if you've got a cord that's full of blood then the baby's getting blood if the cord's empty or the baby's really pale colored and floppy that's a different scenario but usually all that's happened is the baby's especially water birth water birth tends to be because what makes the baby breathe is actually a reduced oxygen which increases the carbon dioxide in their system just before birth and the end of birth is pretty um stressful in a good way in that it gets the baby ready so that when it comes out into the world 
there's a sudden change in temperature, there's a sudden change in environment, and all those things stimulate the baby to breathe. And in water birth, the baby goes from lovely warm water <laughs> into lovely warm water, mm -hmm. and often is just like not even aware that it's here yet. And so they <laughs> so they come out. They can be asleep. And it can be really challenging, the, you know, the first time you're learning to support women with water birth as a midwife because you're going, oh, my God, this baby's not breathing. Mm. Um, but if the cord and the cord is underwater, so it's really it's warm as well. So often the cord will pulse for a lot longer. So the baby doesn't have to transition as quickly. And you're just waiting for this baby to work out that it might need to, you know, join us in this world. And it, there shouldn't be a, any there isn't any rush. Mm, interesting. And um, I'm just thinking about your, um, because I've heard you, heard you talk about these amazing stories about being present at women's births. I wanted to kind of pick your brain in regards to having a midwife present, but also finding a midwife who having that conversation and being able to identify with a midwife who is going to have conversations with her her clients about this is my baggage I will excuse myself from the room or I'm very hands-off how can we find someone who is going to be hands-off and support that sort of birth well I guess it's a relationship isn't it so the midwife has to be honest with the woman about who she is and that's you know when when you have the um I guess when you're lucky enough to be able to choose your midwife that's part of the choosing is is you meet with them and you actually have these conversations right up front before you get into the relationship. And, you know, I learned this very early on in my in private practice midwifery because I'd done home birth kind of in the NHS in England about being really honest with women about who I am, because otherwise how can they choose the right person? And I'm not the right person for a lot of women and I am for others. So I would be really explicit about this is who I am. This is how I practice. This is my kind of belief system around birth. Um, does that work for you and it's absolutely fine if it doesn't and I can maybe find you a midwife who's a better fit so it's about having those conversations and maybe having a conversation with women who have had that midwife as their midwife if you can that's often a good tell about how that midwife practices and asking the midwife for stories about how did you you know things that are important to you so if you're having a VBAC, say to the midwife, what's your, do you do anything different when you're caring for a woman with a VBAC? Is there any, anything that you pay particular attention to in that scenario? And how would that Im influence my birth? So it's asking questions, but you kind of re also relying on the midwife to be, know who she is and be honest about who she is. And I guess trusting your intuition as well and how you feel with that person, I suppose, comes into play as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're getting red flags um, through through the pregnancy, then listen to them because once you're birthing, there's not much you can do about who's in your space. And the next question I wanted to ask you was, what is the differences between a VBAC labour and a non-VBAC labour from a care provider or support perspective? Because it's become very obvious to me with my conversations that that different midwives or different healthcare providers have different views or biases on different things, um, you know, high BMI, uh, VBAC, all these sort of different risk factors that obviously from their, their experience or from their training that they bring into the birth. So what are some of the differences between a VBAC and a non-VBAC? 
Um, it depends on the care provider as to how they approach it, which is, you know, which is why you really need to be asking mm. the care provider because we all have, you know, there are certain things that I am very stressed about in terms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, obstetric cholestasis is a really big um, stressor for me. What's that? It won't be for, um, that, that um, it's pretty un- rare, but where women get kind of really itchy in pregnancy oh, and okay. they have liver abnormalities. But so a lot of the way that we feel about things as midwives is based on our previous experiences and the mm. stories we've been told and all of our baggage. So for me, VBAC, um, I have only had, I have not had a bad experience with VBAC. So I am biased in that, you know, for me, um, things like uterine rupture, I have only seen with women who are having induction with syntocin on with no uterine scar. Mm-hmm. So, so I am more worried about syntocinon with a mm-hmm. uter- with a uterus than I am about a woman laboring who has a scar on her uterus because, in my experience, you know, there there isn't um I haven't experienced a catastrophic outcome. It's always been a good outcome. From my perspe- from a perspective of caring for women who are particularly choosing home, the hospital is a whole other you know set of it's a whole other thing because you've got to negotiate the system for the woman. But with home birth, um, it's always helpful to really understand the woman's previous birth experience and really, you know, have a really good conversation and understand what it is she learned from that experience about herself and about care providers, about birth, what her concerns are going into this next birth, because the difference I find with women who are having VBACs versus women who haven't had a previous cesarean. Um, this is their first VBAC mm-hmm. after their cesarean. Is there? There's a, a tends to be more self doubt, mm-hmm. um, and that comes up in labour. So you kind of ready for that self doubt. And depending on what happened with a previous labour, you know, if they, you know, and I'm doing this in quotes, got stuck, i.e., there was a particular point in labour where everybody lost their patience and they ended up having a cesarean. Mm-hmm that that's in their mind. So women will sometimes ask for vaginal examinations, which I wouldn't normally do in labor because they kind of want to know that their cervix is past the point where it allegedly got stuck last time. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit more work to do with women who are having VBACs, not around the physical risk aspect, because actually, you know, that's really tiny. And there's so many other risks that are higher than that, even physically. And you know, these women have good outcomes. They are more likely to have a vaginal birth than a woman having a first baby. It's, it's to me, you know, not a significant risk to me. It might be to the woman a 0.2% risk, mm-hmm. but for me, it's not more, I'm more worried about the woman's emotional experience and how that might come up in labor and how we can work with her to, to support that. Are you looking for any physical uh, indicators or anything for VBAC women when you're supporting them in a home birth? Yeah, so your threshold's a little bit lower for um, strange patterns of labour. You know, women women have very individual patterns of labour and stop-start labours are fairly normal. But if a woman's had a previous cesarean, you're a little bit more um, concerned about a woman who looks like she's in established labour and then stops Mm -hmm. and then gets into established labour and stops again because that can be a sign that the the uterine muscle isn't well coordinated which can suggest something's happening with the scar so I think thresholds for being concerned about that are a little bit lower um, and 
with the, the really lovely thing about a woman having a physiological birth is she will know if there's something going wrong and she she's she's in her body she's feeling what's happening if there's any you know it's not like a woman who's got an epidural who can't feel that she's getting pain across her scar so mm-hmm. you know the woman will feel it and she'll tell you mm-hmm. um yeah that's what I've actually heard myself because I went on a mission to connect with as many women who had had uterine rupture um, in a, in a special group that there were a lot of women, it was a special scars group. So a lot of women Mm. with these special scars. So I asked them to share their stories and they shared, they knew something, even when they indicated it to the healthcare professional, often they were uh, dismissed in their feeling. They couldn't really identify what was happening, but they knew something was happening. And so I found that really important you know, the woman was the one who mostly, you know, 90, 99% of the, well, pretty much every case I'd heard um, had identified that even if it was, I just don't feel right or I've got some pain in my neck or something like that, um, that went on to be discovered later on. Um, so that was really interesting. And, and another benefit, I suppose, of undisturbed or physiological birth as well, when a woman, you know, is listening to her body, yeah, and I think this goes back into antenatal care is really the maternity system has set up antenatal care to be really grooming women mm. to see the external expert as the expert in their body and to mm-hmm. see medical technology as the saviour. And that's kind of what we do right from the beginning when really antenatal care should all should be about reinforcing the woman's expertise and the woman really connecting into her she has the baby is inside her this is her body she is the expert here and her believing that and connecting in with that and really listening to herself because you're right the number of times when if there has been a bad outcome i'm not just talking about VBAC here when we talk to women afterwards they will say i just i knew there was something not right and often they don't speak up because they think no like i i wouldn't surely they would know if there was something Mm. wrong and and the, all the clinical signs are normal, but the woman knows. And, it, you know, it's the same with all this, you know, monitoring your baby's movements thing that everybody's getting really excited about. So you don't need, if you're connected with your baby, you will notice when there's a change and you need to really listen to your instincts because that's what you're going to have to do as a, as a mother. One of the, I, I 100% agree with that. And it was just beaming when I was listening to you tell that as well. Um, but one of the, I put a recent um, question into the, into the VBAC home birth group and asked them, the audience, what they wanted to know the most. And I'm just thinking as we're talking about the woman knowing um, when there's something wrong, I had heard you speak about the woman knowing eventually, you know, what position to be in and what movement to be in. And I'm recalling my last labor, which was my first labor that I ever had. And I felt, um, I wasn't a hundred percent dilated. So I was eight centimeters dilated. I had a cervical lip and baby was ROT position and senolytic. I had all these medical terms thrown around at me, but I felt like I, after they had broken my waters, I felt that I needed to push. And I have spoken to a lot of other women who have been ROT and they have uh, also explained that they felt like pushing earlier on. Um, So I kind of, I, in my body was like, I need a push. I need to feel like I need a push. But when I was saying it, I was dismissed and told, you know, 
in my mind also I'm saying you're not even 10 centimeters so you can't push yet you know but I felt the urge to push how do we know as women what position to get in and to trust ourselves for that position and not kind of look to the midwife or someone who's in a support circle to kind of what should I be doing you know being that we are supposed to be the expert on this experience well what you've got to think about is um where the care provider is coming from so we're taught from textbooks that are based on birth in the early 1900s where all women were strapped to a table and sedated and babies were removed from them so their cervixes had to be open to put the forceps on the baby otherwise you'd tear the cervix so that's where the idea the cervix has to be open in order to for the baby to come out so that's when our understanding of birth in terms of in hospital how we're trained medically came from so as a care provider you're taught that birth is like this mechanistic thing because you know our understanding of birth came out of an era where the machine was just you know becoming a big thing so the body became conceptualized as a machine and and the idea was that the mechanics of birth is that this door opens which is the cervix and then a baby comes through um which is not true that's not how birth works um and that's we're finding that out now through research but this is too late because all the textbooks tell us that this is what's happening so from the care provider's perspective they're looking at the situation and going the door isn't open the cervix isn't open so you mustn't push because you're not at the point where you're supposed to be pushing yet according to the things i've learned so the things they've learned aren't true they're based on you know a particular idea about birth that was certainly not physiological and what we know about pushing you know early it's actually best not to know what the cervix is doing there you don't get caught up in this is that women will do it in particular when their baby is needing to rotate which is what's happening when the baby's not in that anterior position any other position the baby's head kind of hits the nerves in the in the um near the rectum that make the woman want to push and it happens sooner and woman pushing actually presses the baby down onto the pelvic floor and the pelvic floor acts like a pivot so the baby can rotate more effectively so what's probably happening is that this is women's physiological response to needing to turn their baby and then we step in with our textbooks that are actually incorrect and start telling the woman that that's the wrong thing to do when she can't not do it because the body is doing it and it also undermines her confidence and her expertise which has then you know impacts for the rest of the birth yeah definitely and then you know I know myself afterwards when I started learning more about birth I thought oh damn I should have just listened to myself but when you're in that environment you're not going to listen to yourself most of the time because you're look you know you're in that environment because you're seeking outside support and you know help um so thanks for sharing that that was really insightful I'm just reciting some of the stories that I heard you talk about in um at the doula conference and I'd love to for you to share some of the births that you've attended um, where you've, you know, had to hold yourself back and watch a woman instinctively birth. And, you know, in your mind, you're saying, you know, open your leg. Um, But you're saying, no, Rachel, I won't do that. Can you share some of your special stories with us? Yes. I guess it's my unlearning or my relearning, um, which really happened. Women have taught me Everything I know about birth, really, that's worth knowing has been taught through watching and listening to, to women 
um, mm. and just keeping out of the way during birth. And, you know, I'm, I am a monkey mind person. You know, midwife thinking is probably quite apt. My brain does not stop, you know, does not shut up. Um, that's just who I am. Um, but in birth, I've had to find a way of, of actually just being with what's happening, not being in control of it and just being with. And the things that I've learned have then reinforced that approach. So, um, you know, one of the techniques that I always talk about to other midwives and to students around, you know, you have to know yourself and you have to know how to manage yourself. That's more important than knowing how to manage birth because that manages it, you know, the woman manages that. Um, and one of my things is my my mind is sitting there going, is this happening? Is that happening? And then I, I feel like I need to ask or I need to kind of say something. And I've learned to just wait for five minutes. So I look at the clock and I give myself five minutes to really consider whether or not, am I saying this because it's helpful to this woman and what's happening? Or am I saying it because my brain wants to know something and it's about me? And usually by the kind of five minutes, it's I don't say anything because it was actually all about me. And also, I've learned that when you're watching a woman birth, what you think should be happening is not necessarily what needs to be happening. Um, and I guess one of my, and I've told this story quite a few times, one of the, one of the um, most significant learnings in this was a woman who was a third baby and she'd, um, she'd had quite a, she'd labored through the day and then she'd, you know, she'd stop laboring through the day because she had two kids. And then when they went to bed, she'd labor. So she did this for two nights and this was the second night mm. and she was coming close to birthing this baby. And she just got into a position, she put her head on the floor and her bottom in the air. So a, it was actually upside down almost. It was really weird. And she was pushing. And, you know, me and the other midwife are looking at each other thinking, that's really stupid. Like, <laughs> that, how are you going to get a baby out upside down? Um, and I really wanted to say, why don't you just try? Because I think that baby would have come straight out if she just got into a squat or got upright. But I resisted my urge to speak. Um, and this baby eventually, because it took a long time, because it was going uphill, came out with a little gush of blood behind his head. And then the next contraction, both him and the placenta came out all in one, wow. in one little parcel. And he was he was a little bit kind of, shocked and a little you know he wasn't in fantastic condition um and it was funny because the midwife I was working with felt the cord and went it's okay the cord's pulsing and then the mom went yeah but what's that and it was the placenta was out wow <laughs> so the cord was still pulsing but the placenta wasn't attached to her uterus so the baby wasn't getting any oxygen from her so he was a little bit stunned and he came good after we kind of you know mom had picked him up and handled him and he, he kind of he came good um, but his, so looking back, I think, cause she hadn't had scans. I think that placenta was probably really close to the cervix and the position she was in took the pressure off the placenta so that it could still get, you know, perfused with oxygen just for that last bit of birth. Mm. So it made perfect sense after that, even though it looked, and you know, there, there are countless experiences where women have done really strange things that I've wanted to correct when in fact what they're doing is absolutely perfect for what's going on in them. And they might not consciously, you know, this, that woman had no conscious idea about what was happening inside her. She just instinctively felt that she needed to be in that position. And then after the birth, she actually, the baby was 
grunting a little bit because he'd had a real difficult transition. And we were kind of going, oh, if that continues, we're going to have to transfer in. We weren't saying that to her, but you know, the midwives were kind of keeping an eye on the clock and how long. And I was, you know, and I started doing my kind of, well, if we're just you now fussing with him to, to reposition him on the mother. And the mother just looked at me and she went, no, no, no. So it needs to be like this. And she folded him up into a position that looks looked I'm, I'm thinking no he can't breathe properly <laughs> in that position she folded him up like a little frog and he just came good started breathing oh. perfectly normally and it's like okay yeah you actually do know a bit more than me <laughs> <laughs> that's so special and such a special story to hear that as well and to give that power back to the women as well which is a gift that you're giving when you attend your births well the women always have that that power it's it's in them and it's about kind of reflecting it back because we're socialized as women to not believe in our power and to to you know not exercise our power because it's always there it's whether or not we exercise it and and often what happens is in structures like the maternity system they're actually created to stop you from exercising your power and to allow other people to exercise their power more effectively yeah it's um it becomes a bit of a battle sometimes as well which is really hard Hmm. um so it's really good to learn about this i just wanted to ask you one question before we go um how can we achieve a v-back physiological birth what's what some of the points if you could give us some points on how we could achieve the best way to achieve this oh the best way okay so it's it's to to really consider what it is that you need and that will be individual for different women and it will depend on why you had the cesarean last time you know if it was an elective cesarean that's very different to a woman who labored you know for a long time and so it's exploring your previous birth what lessons did you learn from that birth because every birth is a powerful rite of passage and during that rite of passage we learn really important lessons about who we are and what we need Mm -hmm. so revisiting that birth what is it that you needed from that birth what did you learn about yourself you know about your own power and what what you need in order to exercise your own power and then seeking the environment and care providers who can offer that um, that might be a home birth for some women. They might say, no, I really wouldn't feel powerful having a home birth. It really freaks me out. I really feel like I need to be in a setting, you know, where there's medicine all around me because that makes me feel safe. But I need to take someone in who can negotiate for me. You know, I need mm-hmm. to have a doula or a friend who can really kind of interface with the system to make sure that my needs are met. Um, and just, you know, trusting in doing what you can antenatally to build trust in yourself. And that's not, you know, trust birth is a mantra that's often used. And it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, birth can throw curveballs at you. Birth is like, that's why midwives evolved because sometimes birth just, you know, does things you don't want it to do. And Um, it can be scary for some women sometimes as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, you know, say, yeah, trust both whatever but the really important thing is to build trust in yourself Mm -hmm. in your intuition and in your capacity to know what it is that you need so that if birth does throw you a curveball that you trust that you're gonna you're gonna see that and you're gonna be able to to move with that and Mm -hmm. get what you need out of widow because birth is you can't you really can't predict, but I've given, that's one thing I've learned as a midwife. If somebody says, what's your biggest you know, lesson that you've learned? It is you cannot predict birth. You just mm-hmm. can't. So it's coming to terms with that, 
but really trusting you yourself and your instincts and different women will find different ways to do that you know some women will want to do that in groups other women will want you know I don't know to work with somebody specifically to do that other women will you know I've, I've heard women you're doing full-on exercise because they find that you know running connects them with who they are and makes them feel capable and mm. confident and that's how they do it so there isn't a prescription it's you know how do you build trust in yourself mm. be true to yourself connect with yourself and and find what makes the experience work for you that's what i love or that's what i love about this what, advice what, yeah and what do you need to do that and access it mm. Okay, well, I just want to ask you one more thing. I know I said that, but did you have any other uh, anything else you would love to share with the audience in regards to uh, a physiological VBAC home birth? Uh, not really. Just that. Look, it's it's possible. You know, it's more than possible. The chances are that if you plan to have a physiological VBAC, it will happen. It, it's more likely to happen than a woman planning to have her first baby physiologically. You know, you, you've got everything you need inside you. You can do this. Yay. <laughs> Thanks. So positive. I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your wisdom and your expertise and uh, your passion with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, me again. I just wanted to let you know that I've just created a brand new Facebook group called VBAC Home Birth Support Group, where you can connect with other like-minded mothers who are looking to have a VBAC home birth as well. You can find the link in the show notes and I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for listening to the VBAC Home Birth Stories podcast. I hope that this episode has helped you take another step to finding your voice and confidence in your VBAC journey. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a second to rate and review. Each review helps us to help more women to find out more about VBAC Home Birth, just like you. Don't forget to take a screenshot, share it to your Instagram stories and tag me at the Motherhood Circle. See you next week.